Well, if you have a Bible with you, turn with me to John chapter 5. John chapter 5 this morning. If you don't have a Bible, about halfway down the aisles here on those half walls, there's some black Bibles you can grab. Even right now, feel free to get up and get one of those. Much of the scripture will be behind me on the center screen, though. If you don't have one, you can follow along there. When I was a kid and was bored at an adult event, I used to, I used to play Alien. I don't know if anyone knows this except the people I told in the first service. So playing Alien was this. I would sit there and pretend that I knew nothing about what was happening. Like I just landed from outer space and none of the categories, I knew English, of course, let's pretend that, but uh, had none of the categories for the life that we know and we assume as we experience things. And then I'd guess how I would interpret what was going on, what I was seeing before me. So, for instance, imagine being at a, at a funeral and you see the mechanics of what's going on. You see the things involved in what's going on, the nuts and bolts. But imagine having no understanding for what a funeral is and what it's for and what it's about. So you'd see a casket and you'd just think very fancy box, very large fancy box. That's a centerpiece apparently. You'd see these big bouquet of flowers. And if you knew what flowers were, maybe you'd think, boy, they really decked the place out for this, whatever this is. This is very fancy decorating. You'd see people dressed nicely, but in dark colors. You'd you'd see smiles, but you'd also hear whispers. Not sure why. You'd see hugs and tears. And even if you understood what hugs and tears were, you wouldn't know why they were there. Can you imagine trying to interpret a funeral if you didn't have a category for death and loss? Imagine trying to understand what's going on if you didn't know death and loss are central to a funeral. Well, we're just a few days away from Christmas. And many of us have spent a lot of time on decorations Shopping, parties, maybe you've already started some gift wrapping, you've had some, some events to go to, Christmas Day will come and you'll have a, a, a decadent meal with your family probably, you'll, you'll listen to special music, you'll give and receive generous presents that are wrapped beautifully. Some of you may still even fly out or drive away out of state to go be with family. This is a big deal. It's a big event. We put a lot into it. But what does all this mean? What are all the things about? These are just the mechanics, you could say, the nuts and bolts of Christmas, which I love. I love all the nuts and bolts of Christmas. I love the mechanics of it all. But what do they mean? And what's it all about? I wonder, have you been playing alien this Christmas? Trying to pretend like you don't know what it's really about? Just staring at the things, the nuts and the bolts, and thinking they're an end unto themselves? Maybe you're playing alien, but unintentionally so and happily so. Intentionally so and happily so. Just like, a, like an ostrich putting the head in the sand. I don't want to think about whether there's more to this than just 
the mechanics, the stuff, the things. Maybe you're not playing. Maybe the real meaning of Christmas is hidden to you still, and you're not playing. You feel like a, a foreigner as you watch this stuff go on. You don't know that there's another level or what it is. Well, one of my jobs as a pastor is to help us not live like aliens, at least in this way that I'm talking about right now. My job is to help us to live within the realm of the deepest meaning. Really, that's all of our jobs as Christians, right? That's our, our own personal brain work and heart work that we do throughout the week, or at any event, just not, not just Christmas. We're to live in the most real part of reality. At Christmas time, that's especially important because the mechanics, the nuts in the bolts, the activities, again, which I love, these can either serve as reminders and opportunities, windows into what lies beneath, or distractions. So this year as a church, we've been trying to get below the surface of Christmas. We do this every December. We take a few weeks to think about what's going on in the story, what's behind the scenes. And this year we've been doing that not so much through the Christmas story, through the nativity, through the Bethlehem birth, but instead thinking about the names of Jesus. So last week we talked about who Christ was and is through the lens of his name, Son of Man. We said last week that Jesus uses this name or title of himself more than any other name or title. I won't rehash what we talked about last week about the Son of Man. You can watch or listen online to that message if you missed it. But this week, I'd like us to think about how Jesus is the Son of God. An equally important, an equally clarifying bit of Jesus, his life and his mission. The Son of God is used 124 times in the New Testament, at least a form of it, either Son of God or God's Son or the Son. That's not counting all the times in the Scripture that, that Jesus refers to his Father as Father or, or that other writers refer to uh, the Father as the Father in light of Jesus being the Son. 124 times. It says Son of God or God's Son or the Son. That's significant. But what does it mean? What does Son of God mean? Some say it was language added to the biblical record by Jesus' disciples after Jesus died. They kind of came up with a, a Christ theology after he was gone, and hence they read back into the story certain things, and they weren't shy about putting those things in Jesus' mouth. So they would say, Jesus never said Son of God. That's what his disciples came up with and here. We have it. Others would say that Jesus was a son of God like any human being is. Maybe a really good son of God, really good human being, a good teacher, a moral man, a, a, a leader, a, maybe even a revolutionary. Some say that Jesus was uniquely the son of God, but by that they mean that he's the highest created being and hence, he's higher than the angels, yet not God himself. Some, such as Muslims, think that we Christians believe that God copulated with Mary 
and she gave birth to some sort of hybrid being. And they think that's repulsive. And we agree. That's not what we believe, even though son may seem to imply something like that. No. The Son of God is multidimensional in the Bible. You see, Adam was the first one to be called God's son or a son of God. Adam was the head of the human race, and yet he sinned. But Scripture comes along later and says that Jesus is the Son of God. In that sense, he's like a second Adam, the new head of a new race. Israel, the nation, in the Old Testament is called God's son. Israel as a nation rarely acted like an obedient son. And so the New Testament comes along and sees Jesus as God's son, the son of God. He's the new Israel, the true Israel. King David was called God's son in Scripture. And of course, as you know, Jesus comes as the full and fullest son of David. And in that sense, he fulfills that promise that David and his sons would be the son of God. But in John's gospel account, Jesus is the son of God in some different ways, unique ways. They're all complementary, of course, but John wants to emphasize that Jesus is the son of God who came from heaven. He came from his Father. John wants to emphasize that if Jesus is the Son, then the Father is the Father. And these two go together. And the Father sent the Son on a mission in Jesus' life. And hence this story, the gospel accounts, like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they're about this mission. So one way of summarizing the whole thing is to say, he's the Son of God. He has eternally Related to the Father. He comes with full authority because he comes from the Father and he comes to do his Father's mission. Now we'll come back to all that. Let's start with this. Let's notice that John begins his gospel account with this theme of Jesus' sonship. Turn to John 1. We'll get to John 5 in a second here. John chapter 1 shows us that this is a major theme. Because as Jesus is introduced to us, he's introduced partly as the Son of God. John chapter 1, verse 14. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we've seen his glory. The glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And if you skip to verse 34, you see John the Baptist chiming in here. I have seen and I have borne witness that this is, referring to Jesus, the Son of God. This is also how John wraps up his story of Jesus. Go to the end, chapter 20. Chapter 20 of John's Gospel. In verse 31, we get a purpose statement for the whole book. John 20, verse 31. John says, these things are written so that you may believe. And believe that Jesus is the Christ, or the Messiah, the Son of God. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. He wants this to be a convincing account of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. 
He wants us to believe, but not just believe in him like some people believe in Santa or the Easter bunny or the boogeyman, but, but to believe in this historical man who, who did what this says and hence offers eternal life because he's the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. Okay, now we can go to our focal passage of John chapter 5. In John chapter 5, we see an encounter between Jesus and the religious leaders who were really against him. Earlier in the chapter, Jesus has just healed a man and healed a man on the Sabbath, the day of rest, the day of no work. And so the religious leaders think Jesus has violated the law. He sinned. They question him about this. How can you work or heal on the Sabbath? Jesus' response to them is what we're going to look at. And it's a response that's loaded with father-son language, maybe here more than any other place in the Bible. It's thick reading, it really is. It's pretty dense. But, again, father and son go together here. And I think it's important for us to deal with even this thick material and to do some thick thinking, even at a time like this, the Sunday before Christmas, For a few reasons. One, because many people have the wrong Jesus. And this Jesus shown here is like a fork in the road. You can't encounter the John 5 Jesus and think him just a cute baby or part of an old story or just a miracle worker or just a good man. It's a fork in the road. You're either going to hate him or love him. Also, this is important, even though it's thick, Because getting Jesus right and responding rightly to him is a matter of eternal life and death. It's not just about a better Christmas. We get the Father through the Son. We honor the Father through the Son. There's no honoring the Father unless we honor the Son. we got to get him right. And another reason it's good for us to wade into some thick language here in John 5 is because we who already know the Savior, we who already have the forgiveness of sins, we who wear his covenant upon our hearts, we who are his people because he's purchased us with his own dear blood, we want to know him. We want to know him more. We want to get insight into his relationship with his father because that's how we relate to the son and relate to the father. We want to know him. So here we go. John chapter 5, and we'll start in verse 16. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus because of the healing he just did on the Sabbath. Because he was doing these things on the Sabbath, it says. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This is why the Jews, John tells us, were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. 
For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he's granted the Son also to have life in himself. He's given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life. And those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just. Because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus teaches us what it means that he's the son of God in five different ways in this passage. The first will take us a good bit of time, and then the the four others will, will go rather quickly. The first is scattered throughout these verses. It's sort of the umbrella theme. Here it is. He does the Father's work. The Son of God does the Father's work. What we see in verse 17? We saw Jesus answering them, My Father is working until now, and I am working. Among the Jews in Jesus' day, there was this debate whether God obeyed the Sabbath. They knew they were supposed to obey the Sabbath. They didn't know whether God took Saturday off as well. Some argued, no, 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 he doesn't obey the Sabbath because, yes, he rested on the seventh day in creation, but he just rested from creation. He couldn't rest from everything or this whole world would just spin out of control. It would just dissolve. Uh, Providence and provision uh, would, would just go away. God doesn't rest fully like we're told to. He doesn't obey the Sabbath like we do, they thought. Jesus is entering that debate. He's entering that debate by saying God doesn't work on the Sabbath, or God does work on the Sabbath. He's been working from the beginning. He doesn't need a Sabbath. And I have been working too. He's equating himself with God. That's what they hear. John tells us, verse 18, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. It looks like Jesus will start to get in line or clarify this after after John makes this statement. Because he says in verse 19, the son can do nothing of his own. He'll say the same at the end here. The last verse we read, verse 30, I can do nothing of my own. It's going to sound like maybe he's backstepping a bit. He's conceding something a little bit. He's saying, oh, you misunderstood. I don't think myself equal with God. I can do nothing by myself. 
What he's doing is teaching something about the hierarchy of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that three persons of the Trinity relate to each other in in an authoritarian train, you could say. The Father is giving a commission to the Son. The Son gives a commission to the Spirit. The Son submits to the Father. The Spirit submits to the the son. He's teaching something about his subjection to the father here, but he's also speaking of a unique authority that's his, a unique privilege that's his, and a unique mission that he has. He does what the father does, unlike any other being in the world. And hence, he was making himself equal with God. We'll come back to more of that in a bit. He's making himself equal with God because he's talking about how he does divine things. Three things in this passage that Jesus says he does that the Father does. He heals, he gives life, and he brings final judgment. You might want to write that in in the space you have after point number one. He heals. That's what came before. Remember, that was how the whole controversy got started. Jesus healed a lame man. The Jews in Jesus' day thought God can heal. Only God can heal, and they also thought it would come one day, a season of healing, um, in the final age. So here's this man healing. What's it mean? What, What are the implications here? Jesus says, well, it's the end, yeah. It's the end of time. I'm coming. I'm coming to fulfill the promises of old. And I'm coming to do what my Father does like heal the lame, like only God can do. I mean, even if we believe in healing through a person, we as elders at the church sometimes lay hands on the sick, like James 5 tells us to do. We pray for healing. But if any healing comes, it's not that any person is a healer, it comes through God. But Jesus heals in a different way than elders may pray for healing. He also gives life. He raises the dead. You see in verse 21, as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. If you know John's gospel account well, you'll know that pretty soon in the story, Jesus does this very thing. He raises Lazarus from the dead in John chapter 11. That could be what this is referring to. More likely, though, I think he's referring to a spiritual resurrection. He gives them life like this. Look at verse 24. What a gospel nugget this is. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. That's the kind of resurrection Jesus is talking about earlier in the passage. A resurrection of soul, a resurrection of heart, of spirit, to go from death to life and into eternal life. And he does this not just for Lazarus, but according to verse 24, anyone who believes. Anyone who believes. Now, verse 25 does talk about a future day when he'll raise everybody. It says there, the hour is coming. It's not here yet, but it is, on the other hand, still Now, here, when the dead will hear his voice and will rise from tombs. 
We'll come back to that in a little bit. But tuck this away. Jesus is talking about a resurrection that can either happen before we die, before he returns, and it's one of the soul. It's one that comes through faith. It's his sovereign working to move us from death to life. And only he can do it. Only God can do it. And there's also this other resurrection to come, a final resurrection in the end of the age. And it'll be a resurrection of body and soul, some to eternal life, some to eternal destruction. But only he can raise them like that. Only he can raise, he will raise them. And them is all of us. They will obey his voice. Which leads also to this other thing that he does that only God can do. He heals, he gives life, and he brings final judgment. We saw in verse 22, the father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the son. In verse 27, we read, he has authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. Not son of God here, now son of man. We saw this last week. Remember in Daniel 7, Jesus is the son of man who comes to the eternal throne of God and he's given dominion. And authority to exercise God's judgment that all the nations will serve him. Here, Jesus says, I'm the son of man. And hence, I have the authority to execute divine and universal judgment. Now we come in verse 28 to this verse I already paraphrased. An hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Can you imagine that? Bodies obeying his voice and being assumed to a judgment. Verse 29 tells what will happen then. Those who have done good will go to the resurrection of life. Those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Only Jesus can decide this. But if it sounds like it's simple arithmetic, a pass or fail grade, sort of scales in the balances, too much evil, you go to judgment, enough good, and you get to go to life, resurrection of life. Yeah, but but this one verse can't just tell us everything there is to know about, about how God's economy of grace works. So we read things like this in John 3. The light has come into the world, but people love darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Evil works want to get covered up and hence they don't go to the light and Jesus is the light. And in him there's not only salvation, but there's also life in walking in light and life. So in verse 21 of John 3, Jesus says, whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. God has worked this in him because he's come to the light. He's turned over his wicked deeds. He said, I can't hide them, but you can fix them. And so we read in John 6 that Jesus said, this is the work of God. Here's your work, here's your job, that you believe in him whom he sent. That's the kind of work or good 
being talked about in, Revel- in John 5, 29. Some go to the resurrection of life. Some won't believe this, and they will go to the resurrection of judgment. They've done evil, not just in their deeds, but also in their unbelief. Jesus is the decision. He's the fulcrum point. He's the judge. He's the son of God who does what the father does. And so he heals and he saves, he forgives, he gives life, he judges all the world. And at the end of the age, he will bring us to that judgment through a resurrection by his very voice. So let's just put away Christmas celebrations that are merely about a cute baby, uh, a story of poverty, or, or being excluded by the famous people, missed opportunities, smiling cattle and donkeys, intrigue about the North Star, the mystery of it all, why these kings would come. These are all great things. Don't get me wrong. But if that's all it is, we just got nuts and bolts and mechanics here, and we're playing alien in a sense, right? What's going on behind the scenes? In those glorious details of the, birth of, the Je- of the birth of Jesus, we have the Son of God who came to do what his Father does, which means he's eternal, which means he's on a mission, which means he's God. Now, these other four will go much more quickly. Secondly, we see in this passage that the Son of God has the Father's love. He has the Father's love. Verse 20, For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. You see how function goes together here along with relationship. Jesus does what the Father does because the Father showed him what the business is. Remember in these days, these pre-industrial days, kids did what their fathers do, right? Your dad was a baker, you became a baker. Your dad was a carpenter, you took over the family carpentry business, and you learned dad's secrets along the way. Maybe like inheriting today a family Italian restaurant. You've got grandma's recipes that are secret. They're not shared. It's a family thing. It's love. And it's responsibility. The baton is passed. Well, Jesus is uniquely the son because he uniquely has the father's love. The father loves all of us. The father loves his people in a unique way. He loves his son in an unparalleled, infinite, and eternal way. So Jesus is uniquely on the inside of it all. Again, this implies that Jesus had some existence long before Bethlehem. He's eternal. Eternal relationship, eternal partnership because of the Father's love for the Son, a unique love. Thirdly, as the Son of God, Jesus receives the Father's honor. He receives the Father's honor. Look at verse 22. It says, The Father has given all judgment to the Son that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Now what does it mean to honor the Son? 
Well, maybe more than you think. It doesn't just mean respect him. It doesn't just mean pay him homage. It doesn't just mean say nice things, not bad things about him. Be on his good side, not his bad side. It means worship him. Worship him. Notice John says, John writes what Jesus said, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. No division of worship here. And remarkably, we remember that only God is to be worshipped. We remember that angels in the storyline of the Bible often show up to God's people and they show up glowing and with crazy wings, sometimes eyes all around. And often God's people bow before these crazy beings of might and glory. And it says they worshiped him. But then you always see the same response from the angels. They say, no, 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 get up, get up, get up. I'm a creature like you. I bow with you. You don't bow with me, towards me. I'm not God. Only God is to be worshiped. And that's why it's amazing that Jesus, when people bow before him, never says get up. He says, what are you doing? When Thomas sees the holes in the hand and the side, he says, my Lord and my God. And Jesus doesn't rebuke him for this. All the angels would know to do that. All the angels would say, oh, you can say Lord, small L, but then say my Lord and my angel or something, or my Lord and my helper or something, or my Lord and my, my friend even. But don't say my Lord and my God. Jesus receives that divine worship in faith. God alone is to be worshipped. And Jesus receives that kind of worship. He receives the Father's honor. Fourthly, Jesus, the Son of God, has life in himself. He has life in himself. Verse 26 says, For as the Father has life in himself, so he's granted the Son also to have life in himself. None of us here have life in ourselves. That would mean that we would be eternal. That would mean that we self-generate. That would mean that we don't die. That we just decide to keep living. We can keep on going forever and ever and ever. None of us have life in Ourselves, but, but God does. The theologians call it aseity. A-S-E-I-T-Y. It means in himself. God is in himself and from himself and operates through himself. And we are not like that. But Jesus is. Jesus has life in himself. And that's the hope by which we can get life. How will we get eternal life? Who's he to give it to us? Well, he has life in himself. That's why he can lay down his life and take it up again on the third day. Again, son of God cannot mean a son of God. It cannot mean the son of God who is a special created being, much less just a good teacher or some sort of political revolutionary. Whatever subjection and hierarchy 
happens within the father-son relationship. It's one not of essence. They're of the same essence. They're of the same kind. Sometimes you might have someone show up at your door. Either they're there in a suit with a briefcase or they rode there on a bicycle. And they want to talk to you about how Jesus is the son of God. And by that they mean he's not God. He's the son of God. They'll often point to a little verse in John 14 when Jesus says, The father is greater than I. Now, if I said that, oh, the father is greater than I, you'd say, of course, idiot, don't even say it. It sounds weird. You're not even close. You're you're on the same page. Of course he's greater than you. I, I can say, though, LeBron James is greater than I. He's greater in height, greater in basketball skills, greater in muscles, greater in tattoos. But there's some ways in which I'm greater, right? Uh, I'm older for one. Uh, Maybe I know some things he doesn't. Maybe I have a little bit more education than he does. You see, there's at least a comparison going on. For Jesus to say, the Father is greater than I, he's talking about a relationship that's within the same kind. LeBron James and I are, we're both humans. Jesus is talking about a hierarchy of authority here within the Godhead. He's not saying God is a different kind than he is. So make no mistake. Jesus receives divine worship. He has life in himself. He's eternal and he gives saving eternal life. Forgiving sins because only God can forgive sins. In short, he does what the Father does. He alone has that prerogative and authority and ability. Even if you were given the prerogative or permission to do all that the Father does, you couldn't do most of it. But Jesus has the authority, and he has the power. He's the only one. Lastly, we see that Jesus, the Son of God, does the Father's will. He does the Father's will. That last line, verse 30 there, which we read, it says, My judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Adam was called a son of God, but he failed and led humanity on a crash course of sin and judgment. Jesus is the son of God who came and he was tempted in the wilderness by Satan and didn't give in. Israel, the nation, was called God's son. Occasionally they were a faithful son, even imperfectly so then, and and often they were rebels. Often they played the harlot, God said. Often they cheated. Often they went after other gods. Often they didn't want God as their father. But Jesus is the true Israel. Like the Israelites in the wilderness tested there and they failed. Jesus was in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights and he didn't fail. David was called God's son. 
And at times he was a man after God's own heart, but he failed. He wasn't a perfect son. He wasn't the final son. Scripture talks about David's son also being God's son. But he was far worse than his father was at at being God's son. What hope is there if Jesus doesn't come and finally be a perfect son? Finally, in God's plan, after millennia, there's a perfect son. Who of us can say, I seek not my own will, but the will of God? I mean, everything we do is tainted with selfish motives, right? Some of the things we think are most sacrificial, we got a little bit of a dog in that fight, don't we? We, got, we get a little bit of feedback on that, a little help here, a little bonus there. Jesus said, I seek not my own will, and he meant it, and he did it. He alone did the Father's will. He did the Father's will by actively fulfilling all the law prescribed and not doing all the law forbade. And he also fulfilled his Father's will when more passively he went to the cross. You just think about how John uses God's will or the will of him who sent me or or my father's plan or my father sent me. It's all about going to the cross. That's the plan. Jesus not only fulfilled the father's will in obeying the law, but he fulfilled the father's will in going to the cross. And it's only through him then that we can become sons and daughters of God. Not because we have any right to that sonship. We haven't done what the Father does. We haven't even done what he asks us to do. But through Jesus' perfect sonship and sacrifice, we can become sons of the Most High. This is the gospel This is good news, and this is why Christ came. Like Galatians 4 says, Jesus came to redeem us that we might receive the adoption as sons. And how did he redeem us? Well, 1 Peter 3 says, Christ also suffered once for sins. The righteous one suffered for the unrighteous ones that he might bring us to God, not just heaven, but family, acceptance, relationship, sonship. As it says in Romans 8, all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery leading to fear, but you've received a spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Or one more, 2 Corinthians 6, where there God says, I will make my dwelling among them. I will walk among them. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me. This is why Christ came. With just two or three minutes left, let's think through how we respond to all this. What are some implications? Well, first, recognize him. Recognize him for who he is. For what he says here in this passage, this fork in the road passage, this litmus test passage. You want to know how you understood Jesus correctly in John chapter 5? 
you either want to bow or bristle. Again, baby in a manger is not that threatening. Shepherds who come from the, from the east, that's, that's not that threatening. It's just neat. If it's by itself. But the Son of God, who's coming back to judge all because he has all authority, that's in the manger? That's what the manger's about? What? Now you either bow with the shepherds and later the wise men, or you bristle under it, like Herod did, like Judas later did, like the religious leaders in Jesus' day. When they hear him write, they want to kill him all the more. Do you hear him aright? Do you recognize him? How do you explain that if Jesus was just a man, just a nice man, a good teacher, that they wanted to kill him all the more? One so-called Jesus scholar, he said the reactions as depicted in the Gospels must have been exaggerated by later writers because as far as we can tell from historical research, no first century Jew would have considered the proclamation of forgiveness to be blasphemous. We all want forgiveness. Forgiveness is fine, right? But then how do you explain the cross? How do they put him on a cross then if all Jesus preached was merely forgiveness, forgiveness, forgiveness? He said more, didn't he? He said more about who he is. He said more about what would come. As C.S. Lewis famously said, Jesus is either a liar who lied that he was the son of God, he wasn't, or he was a lunatic who thought he was the son of God and wasn't. Or he's the Lord. He's either liar, lunatic, or Lord. So recognize and marvel. Remember that in verse 20? All this is happening so that you may marvel at the son. That's God's plan. Hear his voice. That's how we respond. We hear it again. Maybe you're hearing it for the first time. Are you hearing it? Are you hearing Come forth, come unto me, have eternal life, hear my words and believe the one who sent me. You know, all will one day hear his voice. One day all will recognize that he's the son of God and they will honor him. God gave him a name which is above every name so that at his name every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. Hear his voice. Hear it now, not later. And don't just hear. Hear and believe. He said believe and receive eternal life. Whoever hears my word and believes has eternal life. He's passed from death to life. What good news. You didn't know you were dead all this time, did you? We didn't either before... We got life and light, and now we look back and say, I was spiritually dead, even though I thought I was very spiritually active. Receive eternal life and honor him. Remember, that's the goal of this, that all may honor the Son or worship the Son. And like the true Son of God, the capital S Son of God, we too want to do the Father's will, not our own will, but the one who has sent us, the one who has bought us. Oh, we don't do everything that Jesus did. 
he has a mission that isn't our mission exactly, but, but we're, to, we're to love what he loves. We're to think his thoughts. We're to go his way. We're to not seek our own will, but his. This is Christmas. This is the birth scene. This is the wonder of the nativity. This is the Bible. This is history. This is eternity. This is all our hope and joy. Let's pray. Father, we pray you would give faith, even right now, to some here who haven't yet come to belief. Perhaps right now they're hearing your voice and they're receiving your grace. They're believing you died, Lord Jesus, on their behalf. They're believing that you give life right now. We pray it be so. We pray, Lord, as believers, whether we've been saved a day, an hour, or 30 years, may we honor the Son. Not seek our own wills, but the will of him who was sent. To love what you love, Lord Jesus. To do what you do in all the ways we're supposed to. Like in humble servantry and sacrifice. We thank you for eternal life. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for coming. Taking on flesh. Doing your Father's work. Bringing salvation to this broken world. And we thank you for your plan to come back again. And to finish all that you started. Help us now as we sing of the details of the story of your birth, Lord Jesus. Help us to see the grandeur and wonder that the Son of God was made a baby. That these events in Luke 2 and Matthew 1 reflect your mission, Lord Jesus, to come to do your Father's work and to bring salvation to our souls. We thank you and praise you. Amen.